that instead of seeing that culture as other, it's part of who they are. And that's kind of the work that Paul is doing for the Roman church here in Romans chapter 11, and which God is doing for us as well. So today, we're going to be considering the ongoing place of the ethno-religious people group of Israel in God's salvation plan, and thinking about what that then means for us. Maybe it's something that you've thought about a bit. Maybe, I suspect, for many of us, it's something that you've not thought about a lot. What is the place of Israel now? Does God, does God relate to Jews any differently now to how he relates to Buddhists or Muslims or atheists? Well, let's, let's work on an answer together out of these verses from Romans chapter 11. So, as Audrey helpfully uh, indicated for us, Paul's using a bit like a Q&A structure, and so we see him start with this rhetorical question from which he builds his argument. And Paul starts with this point. Israel's failure to receive the gospel does not put them beyond redemption. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all, Paul says. No way. Look with me from the second half of verse 11 in your Bible or in your handout there. Rather, because of their transgression, that's their failure to receive the gospel, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So because Israel rejected the, the gospel, that very gospel went global. And we see at the end of verse 11, this happened to make Israel envious. That's strange, isn't it? So in, in God's salvation plan, when the Jews see the Gentiles enjoying their covenant blessings, when they see God's law written on people's hearts and they witness the goodness of life in God's kingdom that Christians enjoy, then they become desirous of it. They want that for themselves. And so they come into God's new multi-ethnic family. This is the vision of Pentecost, which we celebrate today, isn't it? One family, all nations. This is God's plan. This is what Paul wants. And so when we see Paul's heart breaking for Israel, we saw in chapter 9, verse 1, we see in chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1, it's not a heart that's broken in despair, Paul longs for the Jews to know the gospel and he believes that they can. They're not a lost cause. He describes this chain of blessing between Israel and the Gentiles. And it's important to grasp this chain because it runs throughout our passage and the passage next week as well. So first, as we've already seen there, already through Israel's fall, their failure to receive the gospel, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. And secondly, this Gentile salvation will make Israel envious and so will lead to her inclusion. And then Israel's inclusion will bring even greater riches to the rest of God's people. 
can you see that chain kind of back and forth there? It's like, like, a, like a relationship, like a, a friendship or a marriage or any relationship. When one party shows kindness or generosity to the other, then the recipient is motivated to return that affection and, and then the first again in turn. It's like a positive feedback loop of blessing here. One commentator wrote, the no of the Jews to the message of the gospel will lead to the yes of the Gentiles. And this, in turn, will lead to the ultimate yes of the Jews. So, so Paul pictures blessing flowing back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles in God's salvation plan. Any suggestion that Israel and God's people are in opposition, are enemies, any suggestion that Jews and Gentiles are competitors for God's love is, is badly mistaken. And this isn't just an intellectual kind of curiosity for us. No, this, this knowledge that God desires and plans the salvation of Israel should do something in our hearts. And we can see further down through the passage the heart work that God wants to do in us. Have a look at, at verse 18. Do not consider yourself then to be superior. And then again at the end of verse 20, do not be arrogant but tremble. Those are the two imperatives, the two commands of this passage. Do not consider yourself to be superior. Do not be arrogant but tremble. So God's calling out any sense of Gentile superiority. Right? Basically a, a kind of a theological anti-Semitism. Paul has, earlier in Romans, he's called out Jewish boasting, any sense of Jewish superiority, and now he does the reverse. He calls out Gentile boasting, a sense of Gentile superiority. No superiority for the Jew, no superiority for the Gentile. And Paul's own ministry reflects this quality, doesn't it? Have a look at verse 13. I am talking to you Gentiles... Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Yeah, sure, Paul says, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, I wrote in Philippians that I consider my Jewish credentials garbage compared to knowing Christ. But that doesn't mean I've given up on Israel. Far from it, right? Paul hopes that his ministry to the Gentiles will progress God's plan to arouse Israel to envy and save some of them. Ronnie and I are about to have our second child, and one of the things that we're preparing for, and I'm sure any parent with multiple children in the room will smile wryly here, is jealousy from Bella, our eldest, as our family adjusts to a new sibling. And what we already know and Bella will need to learn, is that bringing a new baby into the family and sharing our love with that baby doesn't reduce our love for her. Right? It's not like we have two families, one with one child in each. It won't be one child preferenced over the other. It will be one family right, in which our complete love is extended to both children and as they enrich and bless one another as well. 
In, in God's family, both Jewish and Gentile worshippers of Jesus are fully and equally valued and welcomed and loved. This is not a family within which the older son resents the father's love for the prodigal, nor one in which the younger son allows the lavish love of his father to birth a sense of superiority or preference. So one of the big kind of implication questions, I guess, then that might be on some of our minds is, what will that actually look like for this to play out? What's actually going to happen to the people of Israel in the future? Well, Paul introduces this question here and he focuses in more on it in our next passage. And Alex gets to preach that next week, so good luck, Alex. Uh, I'll just try for now to identify what Paul is kind of guarding against, and then next week we'll think more in depth about what he is saying will or might happen. So there's, there's no room for the opinion that God is done with Israel. Right? You can't look across at Israel and say, they had their chance, they missed it, now God is done with them and he's moved on. To be honest, I think maybe this has sometimes been my own tendency, kind of unconsciously, as I've come to wrestle through the passage this week, that's been kind of revealed in me, I think, and it's no good. There's also not two salvation plans, one plan for the Jews, one plan for the Gentiles. No, there's one plan for salvation through Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel and the Saviour of the world. Through this salvation plan, the gospel went from Israel to the world in order to arouse Israel to envy and bring them back in, at which point Jew and Gentile enrich and bless one another as God's people together. So what should we expect to happen to the people of Israel in the future? Should we expect a great kind of homecoming of the Jews, a mass conversion event, which marks out this chain of blessing that Paul is holding up here. That's for next week. Now, the day has finally come where I get to do two things that I love very much. I get to preach the Bible and talk about gardening at the same time. This is a bit of a dream come true moment for me. So if I get too distracted talking about gardening, just stick your hand up and I'll I'll come back to the Bible. From verse 16, Paul introduces a metaphor which then kind of dominates the rest of our passage, that of an olive tree. Now, some people in the room spent back-breaking hours at Poe and Howard Raggett's place yesterday in the annual olive harvest, so the last thing that you want to see or think about right now is an olive tree. (laughs) Or maybe you feel like you're an expert in olive trees. If so, God is speaking your language today. This metaphor begins with kind of a summary statement in verse 16. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And then it goes on to talk about Gentiles being like wild olive shoots grafted into a cultivated olive tree. So let me give you a very brief picture of grafting. So grafting is the process where you cut off a branch from one tree and you you attach it, you graft it in to another tree. You align the bark of the branch with the bark of the tree that you're grafting it into, 
and the tree will begin to feed and, and nourish the branch. And you do this in order to make the most of the strengths of both the tree, the rootstock, and of the branch. So for example, I, I have a grafted passion fruit vine at home, and the, the rootstock, the base, is from a very vigorous and robust type of passion fruit, but one that doesn't produce much fruit. And then the main vine is of a very fruitful but weaker type of passion fruit. And so together, it's a very strong uh, graft. And so this is what Paul does here. He uses the picture of a grafted olive tree. And he talks about a wild branch from a wild olive tree. This is taken from the wilds of All Nations Park in Northcote. Uh, being grafted into the, the tree, the rootstock of the people of Israel, right? Now, if you're a grafter yourself, you might be tempted to look upon this with some suspicion. It's, it's common practice to, to graft the branches of a cultivated fruitful tree into wild stock that's very vigorous and robust and sturdy, but you wouldn't usually do it the other way around. And so there are some commentators who've kind of chuckled at Paul and said, oh, he's a city boy, he doesn't understand how grafting works. But that, I think, to be honest, that's somewhat arrogant, especially when this is a passage calling out arrogance. But no, Paul isn't getting grafting wrong at all. What he's doing is referring to an, a practice in the ancient Mediterranean in which you'd find a cultivated olive tree that's starting to, to decline, to wither, to decay, and a technique to re-energize that declining cultivated tree is to graft in a few wild branches. And, and somehow, through the functioning of those branches in that tree, it re-energizes the rootstock, re-energizes the tree itself. And so this practice fits perfectly with what Paul's trying to illustrate, right, about what happens between uh, Israel and the Gentiles. So here's a cultivated olive tree. Uh, in Paul's metaphor, this is the people of Israel, the Jews, God's old covenant people. And the cultivated olive tree should produce good fruit, shouldn't it? It's enjoyed all the, the nutrients, the goodness of relationship with God and his promises and his blessing and his special care. A wild olive tree, on the other hand, might be robust and kind of weathers the desert and storms and that kind of thing, but it doesn't produce good fruit, just little kind of dry fruit. It's hardy, but it's not particularly productive. So this cultivated tree is Israel and the wild tree is us, you and me. Uh, unless you are ethnically Jewish. And so in this picture, uh, branches of the cultivated tree are taken off. They're cut away from the tree and thrown away, no longer connected. And branches of wild olives are then grafted into the tree. I'm not going to do actual grafting here because it would take a while and we're here for a sermon, not a gardening lesson. But just imagine that this is then, this wild branch is then grafted in to the cultivated olive tree. Have a look at verse 17 with me. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. So in this practice, branches are taken off the cultivated olive tree to let more light in, to focus the energy of the plant, uh, to, to make it more vibrant and healthy. 
and then the wild branches are taken and grafted in. So down on the ground here, then we've got the Jews, the people of Israel who didn't accept the gospel, right? Those who didn't believe in Jesus as their Messiah, they've been cut off from the cultivated olive tree. And so in this word picture, this metaphor of Paul's, the wild branch that's been grafted in then looks down at the branches that have been cut off and gets proud, feels superior, feels arrogant. But is that the right way for the grafted in branches to perceive themselves and to perceive the branches that have been cut off? Not at all. Paul says, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. As verse 17 said, you share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. So what's the root then in this word picture, in this metaphor? Maybe you can kind of um, draw that out of the text in front of you there. The, the root here is the patriarchs and the promises which God gave to them and to their descendants. It's by God's faithfulness to these promises to the fathers of the nation of Israel, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. It's through those promises that we enjoy all the blessings of Israel. Remember God's promise to each of those forefathers, those patriarchs, to bless the world through them. And so those promises, they flow up to us like sap being drawn up the trunk of a tree and into its branches, whether natural or cultivated, or, or grafted rather, sorry. We have interlocking destinies. And then we, in turn, in this ancient cultivating practice, we invigorate and enrich in the rootstock. It's that chain of blessing between Jew and Gentile. And so Paul's key application of this, then, as we've seen, is in verse 18 and verse 20. If we are wild branches grafted in to be strengthened by and to strengthen the rootstock then, verse 18, do not consider yourself to be superior to the other branches. And verse 20, do not be arrogant, but tremble. There is no room for arrogance, for superiority, for smug self-satisfaction. In the book of Romans, Jews shouldn't think that they are preferenced by God because of their genetics, and Gentiles shouldn't think that they are preferenced by God because of their genetics. So, so what do we do with this picture? It, it makes sense for the people Paul's writing to, right? A, a mixed first century church working out what it means to be Jew and Gentile in one family together. All scripture is breathed out by God, is useful not just to them, but to us as well. So how is this useful to us? Well, I think there's a challenge here as we can, for us to consider as we look back, as we look across, and as we look forward at Israel. As we look back, as we look across, and as we look forward, let's think about the implications of this that God might be impressing on your heart this morning. I wonder, is there anyone here who has ethnic Jewish heritage uh, could you put your hand up? It's not, not like stand up, I'm not going to make you do something. <laughs> yeah, so there's a couple of us, but most of us don't have that heritage. 
But friends, in God's salvation plan, every one of us has that heritage. Every single one of us can trace our spiritual heritage back to the people of Israel, the covenant people of God, through Christ the Messiah, son of David, descended from Abraham. So I wonder, could an implication of this for you be today to explore and appreciate and value your Jewish spiritual heritage more? I wonder how how much do you read the Old Testament, which makes up the majority of our scripture? How much do you seek to grow in your understanding of the Old Testament, the ways that God called people to live under his old covenant? That the scripture, which we call the Old Testament, which Jews share, that their Torah is incredibly rich and impossibly deep and staggeringly beautiful. You can spend a lifetime exploring every corner of the Old Testament and never reach the edges. If this is you, maybe you could get stuck into some reading or some some podcasting to learn more about your spiritual heritage. We're going to preach the book of Isaiah after we finish our time in Romans. Maybe you could begin reading Isaiah in your quiet times. Maybe you could do some study at Ridley to help you understand the Old Testament more. You could go and visit the Jewish Museum in St Kilda. It's your family history. It's your heritage. There's only one tree. Or today, perhaps the challenge for you is one that's more sobering. As we look across at Israel now, do you need to put to death any sense of superiority or or arrogance? Do you need to repent of a theologically veneered anti-Semitism? If there's anything that we've seen from Romans 9 to 11, it's that salvation is by God and it's from God and it's for God. We are in no position to boast. To do so is like being carried up a mountain and then taking selfies at the top. Right? It's like taking an Uber trip and then posting it on Strava. So don't, don't look across at Israel and feel superior. Don't fall into the trap of assuming that God is done with them. This, this happens. Even the great hero of faith, Martin Luther, after years of failed attempts to bring Jewish people to Jesus, he famously became bitter and dismissive of the Jews. He even wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies, and he advocated for their synagogues to be burned down and their rabbis silenced. Even, even this very week, how should we feel, what should we do as we look across at the people of Israel, as we see the violence being done by them and against them. We should grieve just how far off for these people is God's vision for them. God promises to these people in Jeremiah 33, nevertheless, the time will come when I will heal Jerusalem's wounds and give it prosperity and true peace then this city will bring me joy, glory, and honor before all the nations of the earth. The people of the world will see all the good I do for my people, and they will tremble with awe at the peace and prosperity that I provide for them. 
We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem, as Psalm 122 calls us to. Pray for the gospel to transform that place. So we look back at Israel and we see our own heritage. We look across at Israel with with humility. And we look forward for Israel with hope. God has a plan and a future for the people of Israel. We don't know the exact contours of how God will bring about his plans for them. We'll explore that more next week. But we know God's heart for these people. So if you have Jewish friends, pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Introduce them to the worshipper of Yahweh who perfectly lived, who perfectly fulfilled the Torah and then died and rose to write Torah on our hearts. The the Jewish people, after the end of the Second World War, they bestowed an honour on those who had hidden or defended Jews from Nazi persecution. They bestowed on them the title of the righteous among the nations. Those who hid fugitives in their homes, who provided for impoverished Jews out of their own resources, many who died as a result of their own action have received this honour. Some were Christians, while other Christians and churches did nothing or even supported the persecution in a twisted and extreme form of the arrogant superiority which God calls out in his word here. Maria Agnes Triboli, she led her order of nuns to hide Jews in their convent. Lois Gundin, American Christian, she hid Jewish children in France. Andre Trocmé, a French pastor, spent the years of the war hiding Jews in his home and leading them across the mountains into Switzerland. We live in different times, but the gospel gives us the same call to treat the people of Israel with compassion and to live with the law of God, with the Torah written on our hearts. Would it be that when the Jews look across at the Christians, they saw us, and like the Jews seeing Peter and John in Acts, would be astonished and take note that these people had been with Jesus? Would it be that as the Jews look across at us, they would still see us as the righteous among the nations, and that through us, they would come home to their God? Why don't I pray that God would do that through us for them? God, your salvation plan is mysterious and wonderful and unfolding even today. And we pray, God, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come. We pray, Lord, that you would bring many of the people of Israel home to you, that together with them we would enrich and bless one another as we worship you forever. Amen.